what I'd like to do is to uh, make an apology um, at the beginning, um, and, um, and that's that I'd like to talk about ancient texts and modern issues at the same time, and that's a perilous business. And in particular, I realized only after thinking through this material that um, I was using a set of notions without carefully distinguishing them enough. And I think that's partly because they're hard to think about for ways that were brought out, I think, especially clearly in both Candace's and Katya's talk. So this is a family of concepts to do with desire. And that's the word that I'm going to use the most. Um, but I'm also going to slip into talking about wanting, uh, talk about what we care about, talking about love, and also more generally about emotions. And there's a reason for grouping these things together in the Aristotelian tradition, which is that Aristotle, in some sense or another, wants to distinguish all of them from not reason, but reasoning. I'm going to put on this side of the line. Um, at the same time, I think Aristotle wants to see these as potentially reasonable. So not inherently reasonable. In fact, reasoning isn't inherently reasonable either, because you can reason badly. Um, but that all of these things can be reasonable. So I'm going to reserve that word for what in Aristotle is kata logon, or in accordance with logos, which is not reason exactly, um, not in the sense that's more familiar to us anyway from later philosophy. And um, I think this is the most dangerous aspect of what I'm doing, because um, our notions of desire and wanting, I think, can come apart from um, ancient notions, and our notion of reason can come apart from ancient notions of reasoning. Um, the, my remarks today are going to be uh, in service of this, this project that I'm calling The Rationality of Desire in Defense of Platonism. My remarks are about reason, desire, and happiness, uh, which are all uh, topics that have come up already. And I think if you just told someone that you wanted to talk about reason, desire, and happiness, their minds would turn to Aristotle if they knew anything about philosophy. But that's not because Aristotle was the only person to talk about those notions. Um, there are lots of traditions of philosophy that discuss them. But the particular way of joining up those concepts, reason, desire, and happiness, or living well, um, have come to be associated with Aristotle and the Aristotelian tradition in a way that continues to reverberate in contemporary ethics. So what I want to do first is just give a sketch of how some, perhaps even many, uh, or most Aristotelians, explain the relationships between reason, desire, and happiness. And that's in order to say something about Aristotle's or the Aristotelian notion of ethical inquiry as a particular kind of reasoning about what we should want or desire. So here's the sketch. It should be familiar to you if you've read the Nicomachean Ethics. Everyone wants their lives to go well, or perhaps almost everyone. Such a desire is in some sense fundamental to what we pursue. And happiness or flourishing, eudaimonia in Greek, is the name that we give to the going well of a human life, the thing that most of us or all of us care about. It doesn't name, uh, unlike the modern English term, uh, a good feeling that one has, though under the best circumstances a life that goes well does involve a sense of ease or comfort. And I think that shows the path from the ancient notion to the modern notion that um, because a happy life involves ease or comfort, we can mistake uh, the going well of the life for the ease of, or comfort that it brings. 
But the success of a life is more fundamental than any feelings that it prompts its liver to have. To forestall another concern about this way of thinking, a genuinely human life is shared with others. So the fundamental desire to live a good life is not in any obvious sense a selfish desire. Valuing relationships with others and doing so for the sake of those relationships themselves is part of living well as a human being. Moreover, there are facts of the matter about how human lives in general go well. There's truth in this domain, to pick up on the theme of Jen's talk. And there are truths about how your life in its particular context might go well. So there are general truths about human lives and more specific truths about your life in its particular context. And the fact that you like how your life is going is no evidence on its own that it's actually going well. The only thing that really satisfies our desire to live well is whatever in fact amounts to living well for a human being and for the specific human being that we are. Just as there are facts of the matter about whether a ginkgo tree or a brown bear is doing well as the sort of creature it is. In just that way, there is a fact of the matter about us. But there are two distinctive features of how we think about or inquire into those facts. The first difference is, just in virtue of being human beings, we don't study human lives the way that we study bear lives purely from the outside. Rather, we learn what is good in human life partly by living it, and partly by trying to inhabit the experience of others. It's a sort of interested inquiry, and it's pretty much inescapable. This is a difference in kind from our inquiry into the lives of other creatures. There's a second and related difference. It's far from obvious when human lives are going well or badly. This difference is probably one of degree between human lives and non-human lives. The kinds of things that make a human life go well are enormously varied, and people can reasonably disagree about the trade-offs and whether certain kinds of good things are indispensable. So we can ask questions like, can you live a good life in relative seclusion? Seems you can, although it might be out of the ordinary. Likewise, physical impairment and even a great deal of mental distress do not rule out living a good life, it seems to me. In fact, these things may be sources of identity and resilience to the livers of such lives. And we can multiply examples like this. As a result, ethics, which is the name in this tradition for this interested study in how human lives go well, ethics is a difficult business. But what we want from it is a reasoned account. What should we say about how to live? Now, perhaps, as Aristotle seems to have thought, our inquiry will converge on just one schema for how to live a good life. Or perhaps, instead, there are many sorts of good lives which have common features. Either way, we're in a position to reject relativism or skepticism, views that make the difficulty of figuring out what to say about how to live uh, predicated on the idea that there aren't facts about, about the matter. We can reject those views and still make sense of the enormous diversity in the ways that success and failure come to human beings. So this is one way reason figures in the story. It figures as uh, we reason about, we engage in reasoning about how to live. But in the Aristotelian story, reason or reasoning also figures in another way. Exercising, exercising our powers of practical reason, that is deciding how to live, is one of the things that we value doing. And that's not just because this power helps us get other things that we want. It's not merely a tool, we might say. 
Here's a way of bolstering that intuition in more common sense terms. We like to be in charge of ourselves. We like that better than having someone else work out everything for us. Even small children want this. Suppose someone told you that you're not very good at thinking through your life. I think many people, perhaps even all people, would rather get better at it than having someone else do all the work. And I think that's evidence, partial evidence, for thinking that there's a special value in thinking through how to live for yourself. And that it's admirable to be the kind of person who can do that well. Now, Aristotle goes further. He thinks that, quite generally, there's a special value to be had in thinking, th thinking things through. And maybe we should follow Aristotle right from the first sentence of the Nicomachean Ethics, as Katya showed us, and add theoretical inquiries to the list of good activities in human life. So these kinds of activities are just coming to understand how the world works in the most general sense, leaving aside the question of how we ought to go about our lives. Now, we may balk at his making the use of theoretical understanding the very best thing that a human being can do. But again, let me just try to bolster the intuition in some common sense terms. There aren't very many people, I think, whose curiosity ends just where their comfort begins. Now, we might look down on people for what they are curious about. It seems that certain kinds of knowledge, from our perspective, are less valuable than others. But I think if we have a capacious sense of knowledge as the sorts of things that we want to have about the things we're curious about, um, then we can see that this is a very general human impulse. We can make sense of Aristotle's proclamation in the first sentence of his metaphysics that all human beings desire by nature to have knowledge. So this is the basic picture. We have this fundamental desire to live well, to be happy, to live a good life, however you want to explain it. But in order to aim properly at that goal of ours, we need a reasoned account of what will in fact make us achieve that goal. Because we don't seem to come into the world equipped with answers, nor are they easily available from some source. Even very general moral precepts don't tell you how actually to live, even if they describe a large fragment of what you should be trying to do. Furthermore, while we certainly employ our practical reason to meet our needs and pursue other goals we have, there's also some kind of special value in being the kind of person who can think things through properly and use this power correctly. Now, on the whole, I'm very attracted to this sketch of a good life. Perhaps I'm so attracted that you could call me a neo-Aristotelian, or just Aristotelian, <laughs> I prefer that. With some of the caveats that I, I've mentioned above about Aristotle's particular. But my first goal uh, in this talk is to raise some doubts about one part of the story. The part that tells us about ethical inquiry or ethical reflection and its relationship to desire, about what we want. My further goal is to show that very attractive and basically Aristotelian commitments about ethical inquiry should lead us to a less Aristotelian picture of desire and the kind of desire that, so the kind of rationality or reasonableness that desires have. Now, one way of putting this is I, I'm trying to put my finger on something that might be a tension within uh, Aristotelianism. But another way of, of putting it might be that in identifying what's more basic to the view, I want to set it, um, you know, um, set it as, up as the most important thing that we should learn uh, in maybe participating in this tradition. Um, and uh, maybe we'll find that when we go back to the tradition, uh, people like Aristotle and 
St. Thomas Aquinas and so on are actually on our side. So sometimes I'm going to be talking as if I'm arguing against the, against the Aristotelian, but you can hear that as arguing against one version of what Aristotle or the Aristotelian might say. Indirectly, and only indirectly, this is going to constitute an argument in favor of an alternative way of thinking about value and how it manifests itself to us that I associate with Plato. Okay, so now I'm going to be using the handout. So the basic sketch of the Aristotelian story of reason, desire, and happiness suggests two paths between reason and desire. We start off with this fundamental desire to be happy, I'm going to call it the desire to live well. It leads us to an inquiry, ethical inquiry. An ethical inquiry, if it goes well, will teach us some things about what we should want. Um, you can call that a desire, you can call it a wanting. And now it's a desire or a wanting for particular things. goods. So that's the basic story, it seems to me. So we start with this governing desire to live well, and on the basis of that desire, we inquire, because we want a reasoned account of what, in fact, living well is. So on this way of understanding what the Aristotelian is saying, it sounds like there's a transmission of desire. If we're reasonable, if we're not foolish people, when we engage in sustained reflection about how to live, and we adopt a certain view of what will make our lives go well, we should come to want the things that we now think will make us happy. Now, I think something like this account also applies to people who don't or don't have the opportunity to be quite so reflective about what they value. I think in a way the account is saying this is implicit in um, a more general structure of how we think about our lives. In the ordinary course of things, we make trade-offs about different things that we care about. And in making those trade-offs, our decisions reveal what we happen to be more deeply committed to. And over time, these kinds of commitments change alongside our experience. So it seems like the desire to reasoning to desire picture can still apply, even if someone doesn't sit down and say, I'm going to devote the next few years of my life to thinking through how to live well, something like that. That's sort of a special case of this more general phenomenon. And this is connected to an important idea in Aristotle, that ethical disagreement can be understood not just as disagreement in a verbal fashion about what we should care about, but also just disagreement in how people actually live. That said, this picture is committed to the idea that it's not entirely desirable to rely on a merely implicit picture of what to value. One concern is that if we just uh, are making trade-offs, will be inconsistent over time, especially over large swaths of time. And so we'll frustrate our own goals by not fully committing to the things that we are more committed to. Another problem is that if we don't inquire but instead rely on traditional accounts of what to value, we deprive ourselves of the benefit of reflective thought, both by others and by ourselves, about what we should care about. And we might also find a benefit in thinking through that for ourselves. Now, as a story about how possibly things might go, I don't think there's very much objectionable about this account, where we start with this fundamental desire, it leads us to inquire, and then we come to have different desires about, presumably because we would change our minds a little bit. 
Maybe we don't. Maybe we end up back where we started. But I think we can still ask, is this how we actually relate to our lives? Now, in order to make good on that, we have to say something about what, it, what this fundamental desire to live well is. And um, here, I'm, I'm prompted to think with Candace, um, and this is a very odd kind of desire, if it is a desire at all. It's not a kind of wanting that we seem to find ourselves having at a certain time and place. And if we're good analytic philosophers, that's the kind of wanting that we're most familiar thinking about. Now, there are other desires that are similarly diffuse, but they all seem pretty close to this fundamental desire. For instance, we might find ourselves saying that what we want in our, out of our lives is a sense of fulfillment. That's a very general sort of thing. Now, how would we go about pursuing that? Well, we have to find out what kinds of activities are meaningful to us, the kinds of activities that will give rise to fulfillment, a sense of fulfillment. But if we want to get it right, we might notice, I think, quite quickly that a sense of fulfillment in the absence of doing something we think is genuinely valuable is pretty hollow. So to work this idea out, we'd have to think about what, in fact, we ought to be doing, what, value, what activities are, in fact, valuable. So wanting to feel fulfilled throws us back on this more fundamental desire to live well. So maybe it makes more sense if we think about all these diffuse desires somehow connecting back to this more basic desire um, to say that what it is to have this desire to live well or to be happy is something about the structure of what we want rather than some particular item in our psychology. And that move would, I think, bolster the Aristotelian thought that at least in ordinary circumstances, this desire is not only basic, it doesn't just govern the other things that we go for, but it's somehow inescapable. That is, you can't be the kind of person who just wants things locally, it seems. So let's grant that the model, the Aristotelian model of desire and its relationship to reasoning can accommodate this kind of complexity. In other words, that the output side is a little bit different from the input side. And I have not much more to say about it because I'm still so puzzled about the things that Candace pointed to. I realized that only when I tried to write this paper myself. Um, but I didn't realize soon enough to really reflect on it. So here's my question. Is it true in general that we form our commitments by, as the model suggests, identifying through reasoning what in fact there is to value and only then coming to value what we've identified. Is that how we relate to the things that we take to be valuable in our lives? And I think a good test case for the model is loving relationships. One reason is that these seem very important to very many people. Another reason is that Aristotle devoted two books out of the ten in the Nicomachean Ethics to this topic. We may not notice that because translators render his word philia with the English friendship, but he wants to include everything from business relationships to familial ones, but the core cases of friendship for him, or philia for him, are ones that we would identify with intimacy. So I think it's okay to speak about love here. Quite a lot of what Aristotle says in these books may strike us as strange. We may feel here especially that he's operating in his social context and at some distance from our own. Nevertheless, one of the claims he makes is something I think we may want to affirm. And that is that a life without such loving relationships is empty of a special sort of value that's not simply on a par 
with other good things that we may regard as our advantages. That's the word I will use as I'm playing the role of contemporary philosopher, philosopher today, um, to capture what in translations of Aristotle is rendered external goods. So there are a category of good things that are the advantages, things that promote the well-being of our lives without being instances of the activities that are that well-being or that doing well. Now, loving relationships are still on Aristotle's picture like the other advantages, like wealth and physical health. Um, Loving relationships are like the other advantages in this way. As I said, they're not part of living well. They're not instances of living well. Because, as Aristotle uh, argues, I think quite compellingly, living well is an activity, or perhaps a pattern of activity. And so, the fact that they're special in some way, but they're still like these other advantages, may lead us to ask, as Aristotle does, are we forced to say that the person who is living well needs loving relationships, needs friends? He asks this in both of his ethical treatises, the Eudemian and the Nicomachean Ethics, and he gives two different answers. So he was clearly puzzled about this question. And the reason we may have this question is that Aristotle recommended a particular set of ideas about living well on the grounds that that set of ideas would guarantee the self-sufficiency or the integrity, we might say, of living well, that it doesn't require other things. All by itself, it makes um, our lives worth living. And wouldn't it be compromised, the self-sufficiency, if we said, to live well, you need friends? Aristotle's reply is that, in the strictest sense, the happiness of the happy person doesn't depend on friendship or loving relationships. Rather, the wise and virtuous person, the person who is capable of being happy, will naturally seek out loving relationships of the best kind. And this seeking is the perfected version of an impulse that we all share, to share our joys and sorrows, our activities and our thoughts with one another. This is one of the places Aristotle invokes what's natural to explain what's valuable in human life. But the very naturalness of this impulse to live with others brings up the question of how this wise and happy person came to value the loving relationships in her life. Surely, we might think, if this person were ordinary and living in ordinary circumstances, those relationships would have been a general feature of her life even before she became wise. And then we're supposed to imagine that at some point this person becomes wise, fully virtuous, with sufficient maturity of character, we might say, And so the most fulfilling sort of intimacy Aristotle describes become possible for her, the friendship or loving relationship between two similarly good people who know and value each other's character. So here's here's the way of putting the worry, and this is under handout two. It seems to me that neither the care that's expressed in loving relationships nor the purely intellectual apprehension of their value seem to precede each other. It seems like in the process of developing these relationships already, the person who's on her way to becoming wise would already have a grasp of, to some extent, what's valuable. It shouldn't be that when you become fully wise, this radically transforms your relationship to uh, the people who are already in your life, or so it seems to me. These things seem to develop hand in hand. So just as the rest of us who aren't wise, let's say, come to care for people at the same time as 
and not after we get to know what about them is worth care, so too the wise person comes to value her friends at the same time as and not after she comes to know their characters. And this seems to be something that develops over time. But the model of reason and desire that I laid out at the beginning seems to require that we come to understand fully what's valuable only when we perform this act of reflection or inquiry. And then only later are we warranted in wanting the particular things in our life on the basis of the fundamental desire to be happy. Now, it may seem to you that this is not a very deep problem because there are some ways to accommodate it within the model. So one thing we might want to say is that the clumsy way that I laid out the model at the beginning as a sequence of events, first you want to live well, then you reason, then you desire the particular fruits of that reasoning. This clumsy way of laying out the model is inaccurate because this step of ethical inquiry or reasoning is transformative. It isn't just a channel. So really what I should have done is draw the arrow that way. And now my desire to live well, remember, is the structure of the desire of all the things that I want. So in some sense it includes all the things that I'm already wanting. So it's not that I end up with, say, a new, necessarily a new set of desires or cares or wants, but rather ethical inquiry transforms what I started with, which somehow includes the particular good things. The raw materials, in other words, for ethical inquiry, our impulses towards what is good and advantageous in human life, are there all along. So the talk of first and later isn't temporal, isn't in time sequence, but rather somehow logical. And when we acquire wisdom, that will transform our perspective on what we already care about, but that transformation needn't be fully radical. So this is my, my first way of um, making sense of um, what I call love's knowledge. So the idea would be that ethical understanding transforms what we care about, and so we have these existing desires, cares, and so on, and now they've become rationally validated desires, cares, and so on. A second response that's more specific to the particular case can be built up from this. So we might say further that loving relationships are um, valued for their own sake, each individual one, but it's not that particular friendships or loving relationships will figure in the wise person's conception of what to value in human life. Rather, they'll notice this fact that Aristotle argues for, that these are important um, to living the best kind of life. But the picture, what's the output of ethical inquiry, is a general statement of what we should care about. And I put that in terms of what categories of value there are. So what's transformed is not the value that the wise person finds in each of her particular friendships, but rather the value that she finds in friendship generally. So on the basis of that, we could tell the story this way. The wise person, before she was fully wise, intuited all along that loving relationships make possible a value that can't be captured in, let's say, purely instrumental terms. I don't just have these relationships to get things out of people. That's something even any reasonably decent person knows. Before the wise person acquired her wisdom, it may have been unclear to her whether, for instance, the value of those relationships resides in the pleasures of intimacy. But when she reflects, it turns out, she comes to know, that the sharing of lives is what makes the relationships so valuable. 
and indeed what makes them distinctive relative to the other advantages like wealth and health. It's almost on the bridge, we might say. Um, it's, it's a kind of bridge between the advantages and the, the valuable life activities that constitute living well. And now this is something that the wise person understands and that she can explain to others, perhaps. And so here we see that the fruits of ethical reflection might be a kind of recommitment. Right? The wise person recommits to her existing relationships, and they may already be of the best kind. But of course, there would still be something practical because it might reorient you in the future to thinking about what new relationships you might pursue or, or how you um, relate these loving relationships to other good things in your life. So here are two ways. This is my option two on the handout. Um, ethical understanding concerns categories of value rather than the particular good things that we value. An inquiry is seeking an understanding of the categories. Each of these responses reconfigures one aspect of the model. I've already talked through one of them, which is that this idea that there's a transmission of desire might be misleading. We don't set out with a fundamental desire for a good life, search for its constituents, and then want those constituents in the way that we begin from a desire for a satisfying meal, go to the grocery store, find the ingredients, and then end up picking just the ingredients that will contribute to this project. In other words, we embark on ethical reflection with a range of concerns and cares that already and implicitly aspire to a life lived well. That's my talk of containment, that somehow desires for particular goods are contained in this, or captured by it. What we want out of ethical inquiry is a framework to make sense of the different things that we care about. Because we realize that we might be overvaluing some things, undervaluing others, or that we make mistakes in the trade-offs. And our desires may in fact change when we reflect. But we don't embark on reflection with just one desire, this desire to live well and in a blank slate otherwise. That's the first response. The second response incorporates this idea, but it goes further by saying that what's transformed is not our individual commitments, but rather our sense of how those commitments figure into a general story of how to live well. Now, the constituents of a good life might be more determinate than even the outline sketch that Aristotle gives in the Nicomachean Ethics, because we might think, if you really wanted to be someone wise who could live well in her context, you'd have to know a lot about that context, and that that would somehow get captured in the understanding. But nevertheless, ethical understanding would never be so determinate that it would make further reflection otios. We always have to think about how what we care about can be realized in our circumstances. The circumstances change. And over time, our lives change, and that might change the facts about what promotes our well-being. And so if we understand wisdom in the ancient sense as the art of living well, it's got to be sensitive to this openness of the future, even if it's grounded resolutely in certain basic value commitments, the unshakable ones that the wise person understands. So each of these responses to my puzzle about loving relationships can be seen to bolster the basic account, but I also think each of them comes with a surprising and undesirable consequence for understanding when our desires or cares are reasonable. I'm going to start with the second one, this idea that what we learn from inquiry is only general, or about categories of value. It seems like on this picture, we're committed to the thought that loving an individual or valuing a particular relationship isn't directly a, a rational response to our recognition of what's valuable. 
Rather, it's only as instances of a category that each particular commitment or relationship finds a place in a picture of what is worthwhile. Now, it doesn't follow from that that our love in any given case is being represented as unreasonable because it's still going to be well-grounded if it really is an instance of the general category. But nevertheless, we may be concerned, if we get in the right mood, that such generic grounding is insufficient to capture the kind of value that loving relationships have and the thoughts that we have about what it is to respond well when we find this value in our lives. That is, especially when people make manifest this value to us in our direct encounter with them. Now, it's perhaps not immediately obvious what this has to do with the reasonableness of desire, but I think the difficulty is generated by the fact that we can have both particular and general desires. Our loving relationships, I think, are characterized by the first. Our care is for the person and our individual connection to them. Meanwhile, the type of value that is directly grounded by a picture of the well-lived life must, it seems, be general. So if the desires that flow from the picture are general, particular desires aren't directly grounded by the picture. And that might threaten to cast them outside the space of reasons. With the first response that somehow wisdom is just transformative, I think the difficulty is in a different place. Here it is that our pre-reflective desires, the things that we care about before we perform ethical inquiry, are represented as standing in need of justification. A justification that only comes when we are reasoning. And that means that the appropriate way of responding to value is on this picture, always mediated by the exercise of reasoning. Now, it's possible on this first option that um, both particular and general desires may be validated by the test of reflection. But still, no desire, except perhaps the basic desire to live well, can do without such a justification. So it puts our cares in the position of needing validation. Now, these consequences may be somewhat surprising, at least if you've been reading recent Aristotelian ethics. And that's because one of the aspects of this tradition that has been celebrated by some of its inheritors is that emotion and desire are not represented as standing outside the realm of rationality, broadly construed, what I've been talking about as being reasonable. So our emotional responsiveness to the world can be contrasted with processes of reasoning, but the good life is brought about by the cooperation of both aspects. Jen talked about this, so I won't emphasize it further. Both of these types of engagement with the world, emotions or desires on the one hand and reasoning on the other, display, in the best case, reasonableness. When my anger is well-tuned, when I get angry at the right things and to the right degree, then that pattern displays the pervasion of my life with reason as much as does a pattern of careful judgment about how to respond to cases of perceived harm. This account of the reasonableness of emotion has been developed in rather different ways by recent Aristotelians. So I want to mention two examples. One line of thought is defended by John McDowell. On McDowell's view, it's a mistake to think of the reactive and perceptive aspects of our reasonable engagement with the world as wholly different in kind to the creative and reasoning aspects. So for instance, the character excellence of mildness, which is the right relation to feeling anger and to the objects of anger, is a complex disposition that incorporates 
both modes of seeing the world and modes of judging the world and indeed modes of feeling in reaction to the world. So here's a slogan. On McDowell's view, feeling rightly and thinking straight aren't different praiseworthy qualities. I think this is an interesting view, but it loses a grip on what made the Aristotelian thought about emotions interesting in the first place, I think, or let's say worthwhile, worth endorsing. So the Aristotelian thought is that reasoning isn't the only way there is of being reasonable. And if we just expand the definition of reasoning to incorporate things like perceptual judgment and emotional response, that misses the point. The advantage of the Aristotelian story about emotion was supposed to be that our emotional lives are a locus of responding correctly to value, independently of, and now I need a new word, so I don't beg the question against McDowell, independently of the ratiocinative powers of the mind. So we can acknowledge the cognitive aspect of emotion, which makes emotions conformable to reasoning, and so potentially reasonable, without assimilating the two kinds of responsiveness or engagement. And an Aristotelian account of emotion that does make this case, the case that I just presented, is due to Martha Nussbaum, another of my teachers. Nussbaum takes the emotions to be not only cognitive, but also eudaimonistic, that is to express or contain judgments about what makes our lives go well or badly. Moreover, having an emotion comes with a kind of attentional focus on just whatever in the world purportedly makes that contribution to our lives. And that means that emotions can be assessed against the facts of what properly merits such a judgment and such attention. So my anger, when it's properly attuned, brings my attention to certain aspects of the world that merits concern and represents them in the right way, as things to be angry about. Now, it may take reasoning to work out the proper limits for such a reaction, including the perceptual, the perceptual or the attentional elements. So my anger is going to dissipate when I stop seeing the world in angry ways, but very often the best way to stop seeing the world in angry ways is to reason that I shouldn't anymore, let's say. And that means that there's a kind of judgment and control that flow from practical reasoning that govern the emotions. There's a prima facie, first glance quality to emotional judgments. All the same, this is an important aspect of Nussbaum's view, reasoning can also cloud our sensitivity to value. So I can talk myself out of feeling angry because of an injustice that's done to someone by saying, oh, that's not of my concern. And imagine in such a case that I still feel a kind of latent discomfort. That discomfort is the correct response because I reasoned incorrectly. So this account shows how the emotions can be an independent source of insight into what's valuable. So let's take this Aristotelian account of the emotions and turn back to what I said about ethical inquiry. As I said earlier, when we are faced with the challenge of locating loving relationships in a reflective picture of what's valuable, maybe we should just say inquiry just transforms what we are attached to into rational attachments, which allows that they may be formed already before they get this endorsement. Or we can argue specifically about love that the only thing that gets transformed are our sense of the categories of value, not our particular commitments. So, um, again, this is just the two surprising implications of the Aristotelian model under two on the handout. Appropriate responsiveness to value is, on the first response, mediated by the exercise of reasoning and the authority of reason, we might say. And on the second, appropriate responsiveness to value takes place only on the general level as a result of inquiry. 
Now, it may be that at some level of abstraction, the Aristotelian account of emotions is consistent with both of those claims. After all, the emotions have to be regulated by reasoning. And even though the emotions are elicited by our perceptions of particular situations, it may be that when they present the world as being a certain way that's valuable or disvaluable to us, that's always in terms of the general. But I don't think that's the most powerful version of the Aristotelian theory. Regulation by reasoning is consistent with the idea that our emotional lives are a source of independent assessment of value in the world. It seems like our emotional judgments can be reasonable even before they are explicitly endorsed by reasoning. And likewise, and here's my bolder claim, it seems that value can make itself manifest in the particularity of individual people or even things and places and ideals, and our reactions to that value are justified just by the value that they have not by some endorsement. It seems we can be justified even if we can't accommodate this sense of care towards what we find valuable. Now, in a reflective mood, we might see of other people that loving a specific person can be more than a pleasant diversion. We might learn from others' example that it's actually an essential aspect of a well-lived life. But it seems we really find this out when we ourselves come to love another in the best possible way. It's not that on the one hand we can fall in love and on the other hand we can reflectively endorse that love. It seems that we learn from loving and we can love reflectively. Part of the splendor of love is a certain emotionally invested awareness in the value of our love and the other things that flow from it. Now, of course, we can be mistaken. We can be mistaken about whether we love someone but we can also be obviously mistaken about whether that love is worthwhile and whether it lives up to the implicit picture we have of the person and ourselves in our relationship. Now that suggests that the awareness of value that's part of love is itself accessible by the standard of reasonableness. Is there a place for this idea of loving reflectively on the Aristotelian account of ethical inquiry? I think it doesn't have a natural home, given what I said about the need on this picture for there to be a mediation by reasoning. Now, you can respond to this claim by just saying, mm, love is a really weird case. It's marginal. And I think that's actually a plausible response. So here we have just reached the limits of theorizing. There's a framework, and we have a choice between the framework and the judgment that it delivers about a particular case. I don't think you can argue from some kind of neutral stance that it's better to jettison the framework or it's better to just regard the case as marginal. But I just want to observe that to the extent that we think about love as marginal or central to our understanding of what we care about, we'll think that this case is more or less problematic. So here is the challenge. And I'm just going to work through the handout because I don't want to read anymore. So if I'm right, then... In the right circumstances, love can be a reasonable response to the value that particular things have. And I'm thinking paradigmatically, of course, of the love that we bear towards people. But, of course, there are many kinds of things that we can love. If the Aristotelian model of ethical reflection were universally true, then reasonably responding to value depends on the mediation of reasoning. But, I argued, or just tried to prompt you to agree with me about... Um, we can love particulars apart from a judgment of reasoning. And we can do so reasonably. 
If that's right, then the Aristotelian model doesn't capture the reasonableness of our responses to all the kinds of value in human life. That's the neutral way of stating the challenge. I want to look at an alternative way of thinking about love and desire. And in particular, in the account of erotic desire in the speech of Socrates in Plato's Symposium, that gives rise to a distinct flavor of eudaimonistic ethical theory. On this picture, the obsessive possibilities of sexual love are traced to the fact that, as vulnerable and limited beings, what we care about, what we desire, aims not merely at getting some good thing, but keeping hold of it securely. So you might have thought this is just a dialogue about sex and love and that kind of stuff, but I think it actually generates a very specific commitment about wanting in general. And so this is a different flavor of eudaimonistic theory altogether. And I think this makes better sense of this problem with the analytic philosophy type of desire, right? When we're hungry or thirsty, that's when we just lack something, and then when we fill up, we don't want it anymore. But, Socrates says, we also want what we already have, because we want to hold on to it. And that fact about the deepest sense of wanting is derived from the erotic domain, and so I'm going to speak now of love for the beautiful. But this is a notion of beauty that's ethically saturated, it's not purely aesthetic. Importantly, it shares with our notion of beauty an association with the type of value that thrusts itself at us, that manifests itself to us, that we react to. On this view in the symposium, we can see a physical body as beautiful, but also the character of a person and worthwhile pursuits, such as writing laws for a community or engaging in inquiry. And I think what's valuable about this way of thinking about what we care about is that the moral realism of ancient eudaimonism is especially clear when it's put in these terms. Value is out there in the world, assaulting our our senses, as it were. So we're told in the symposium that we have this longing to overcome our vulnerability, and it can't ultimately be satisfied by individual people. Nevertheless, the account begins with the fact that we have these attachments in their full particularity. And so love turns out to be not only central to ethics, but paradigmatic for desire. And our desires to act, which again are taken to be so central in the tradition of analytic philosophy, our desires to act are pictured as a kind of overflowing from our longing to be with or remain with the objects of love. And the good life itself is one such object of love. As on the Aristotelian picture, there's a transformation of perspective as we grow nearer true ethical understanding. There's a process by which we can come to grasp better what will really satisfy our longing to live well that takes us beyond our particular attachments, the ones that we start with. But the transformed picture, and here's the crucial difference, does not recommend a different mode of relation to value, one that is mediated by exercises of reasoning or that consists in a general framework of what categories of value there are. Rather, the transformation, as we go up Socrates' ladder of love, the transformation promises an expanded sense of what is valuable itself, and an awareness not only of the instances of value, but of their source, which is a special mode of relation to the particulars, not just a new thing that we now care about. So insofar as our relationship towards all goodness is represented as loving reflectively, the right relation to goodness is represented as loving reflectively, um, 
The very thing that I argue that the Aristotelian picture struggles to accommodate is secured on the Platonic account. And Iris Murdoch, for instance, develops this thought into a full-blown existentialist Platonic ethical theory in which the, trans the transcendent value of individuals is somehow located in the fact that they lie beyond our full comprehension, and that they have inexhaustible possibilities as independent sources of subjectivity. So I want to say the Aristotelian theory uh, falters just where the Platonic theory shines. Now, we might, of course, have just moved the bump in the rug, and now we have problems with all the things that we want to say about the good that comes of reasoning. I'm not sure. Um, but what I want to press is that um, insofar as we take seriously the idea that ethics is not just about what we find ourselves wanting, but what we most deeply care about, this alternative picture might have distinctive intellectual benefits. And if the Aristotelian story can accommodate them, then so much the better for it. Um, but if we emphasize the account of reflection and inquiry that I began with, it might seem that we lose hold of this very important ethical insight. Thank you. I want to very much hold on to this idea of clarifying both what we're going for and the particular commitments we have that aspire to going for what we should go for. So ethical inquiry, you know, is in, in, in the, on the right understanding, is enmeshed with our commitments and our desires. Um, that's one of the things, that's the thing that distinguishes, distinguishes it from theoretical modes of inquiry. Anthropological modes of inquiry with respect to what people care about, we might say, right? We can study what people care about in this way, at a distance, without an interest in it. Um, so why is it difficult to locate particular, or let's say individuals, um, and our care for them in that picture? I think the issue is that um, the, the model represents reflection or reasoning as education. So um, in the same way that when we get angry, we want to make sure that we get angry only to the right extent, and we so need to control that. 
Um, desire is seen on this picture as um, one of its aspects is seen as it's being uncontrollable. And uh, I think that's very deep in the tradition of moral philosophy, of thinking about um, the fruit of ethical inquiry is, as giving us a sense of control. Now, do we always want to be in control? The challenge from this Platonist picture of responding to value, I think, is that sometimes um, the world gives itself to us in a way that makes us lose control, and that's the right way to respond. So I think um, a kind of sense of the good of wisdom or philosophy being a controlled life that can free itself from vulnerability is kind of the source of the problem, which is curious because, of course, McIntyre is the author of dependent rational animals. We might say vulnerable rational animals, and so he should emphasize this, but um, I think there's something about the very ideal of reason, and I'm talking about capital R reason as opposed to Aristotle's reasoning, that kind of points in the direction that what we're after is control. And so I think that's a fantasy um, of a certain kind that should be resisted in our ethical lives and also in our ethical theorizing. But I don't have a full story for how to do so yet. Julia? Yes, I was wondering whether you can say a bit more about this idea that there are uh, things that are reasonable to love or reasonable to care about. Because I was thinking about two examples that I can capture a domain of things that we value that escape this idea that we need to apply ethical inquiry or find a reasonable justification. I was thinking, for example, the love of mother to her child. Of course, like, we don't even ask why. And uh, there may be justification that goes back to evolution, biological justification. But that escape is there, and it's really like a relationship of value. And even this mother probably would say, it comes to you that you value this relationship. Or another example is uh, uh, with the beautiful. Yeah. I go out to see ballet, and I don't know why. It's because I need this uh, beauty in my life. And I feel like there's no justification, and there's no reasonable way of uh, ethically inquiring into why is that. It just comes to you. And so I was wondering whether there's like a domain of Good. Now, the um, the two examples you chose are on, in this tradition, this Platonist tradition, thought of as being of the same kind in an important way. That um, uh, the kind of ineffable uh, quality of our responses to people, uh, whether that's people with whom we stand in voluntary relationships or people with whom we stand in these kinds of relationships that go beyond that, as with the, the mother and the child, um, these are kind of figured as uh, on a par with the kinds of pull that we feel towards um, the beautiful, the aesthetic, and so on. And in a way, um, seeing, the, seeing those as, as more similar to each other than you might have expected, that's part of the move to sort of um, render beauty a fully ethical concept. I think that's. I think. It, I think you're right that we we wouldn't want to seek justification. But the um, the philosopher who's a fan of reason will say there can be um, bad forms of relationship to beauty. Right? Beauty has this dark side. We might say. And so, what's going to provide the standard that tells us when 
let's not think about the mother and the child, although I think even there, um, people can, for instance, uh, children as they grow up can be smothered by parents who, as it were, care too much for them because they always want to keep them from harm. So maybe that's, that's the case. So it wouldn't be a case of whether you love the child or not, maybe we should say you should, but a case of how you love as a response to the value that you find. And likewise with the ballet, if, um, if you went to the ballet every night, we might not worry about you, but we might think that you weren't living up to the ideals that you yourself have because you profess commitments for other things. And so then we say, how do we draw the line between the right response and the wrong response? And I think, in a way, this, this kind of um, reasoning is fine because it takes the attachments for granted and says, um, how do they figure in our response to other kinds of goodness? Rather than saying that they already need this kind of justification. So I'm, I want to say, you know, the part of the Aristotelian picture that's just about wanting to have a reason to count of what's valuable so that we don't make mistakes about responding to value, that part we can hang on to without having the justificatory emphasis. Um, and I think your examples make that really vivid. Mariana. Um, okay. First, thank you for this, of course. Um, so midway through your presentation, you distinguish between relying on traditional thought and this, do you distinguish this from ethical inquiry, the one that you so, I was wondering if uh, you had a criterion in mind that would help us distinguish between this a more like genuine ethical inquiry from this traditional thought. So, I was thinking that um, we shouldn't represent people who, let's say, aren't committed to reflecting about what they care about as, in some sense, not having any picture of what to care about. But that in the absence of doing some of the thinking for yourself, and it doesn't have to be very philosophical or high-grade kind of thinking. It's the kind of thinking, I think, that's within the ambit of possibilities for virtually everyone. Um, in, in, if, you, if you sort of don't take up that challenge, then you are forced to rely on your beliefs. And um, I happen to think that, you know, we don't, uh, you know, we just find ourselves with, with all kinds of commitments um, uh, you know, the stock of beliefs we have kind of depends on the kinds of things that people care about around us. Um, and I think a large fraction of those thoughts are going to be governed by what's traditionally taken to be valuable. Of course, you know, you might think in the absence of a regime of moral education, how is that possible? Well, I think every social regime is a regime of moral education. So even in very, you know, we might think we live in this, you know, great liberated context, but of course there, there's there's, as it were, um, even more pressure not to think um, uh, in a context where we take ourselves to be very reflective, although we don't take very many opportunities for reflection. Um, so, so I think, you know, is it, is it positively bad to rely on that kind of account? I don't want to go that far, because I do think there's this danger of wanting to over-theorize um, our, our lives. But I do think that there's a um, something chancy. So this, maybe this is the extent to which I'm a control philosopher too, right? I do think there's some value to this kind of reasoning because it let, lets us make sense of what doesn't make sense. Now, if we think we can live a life in our context where we don't have the sense of practical disruption, where we have moments of things not making sense to us, if we, if we can live that way, then um, maybe we don't need a ton of reflection. But I happen to think that because we're creatures with an unconscious and Practical disruption is like a regular feature of our life. It's the exception when we know what we're doing. 
Um, practical knowledge is very elusive to hold on to. Wisdom is really hard to get. Um, because of all those things, we'll need to do some of the active kind of reasoning, even if it's not of a very philosophical kind. Please join me in thanking Professor Darnell.